Well, so good to see you guys the week before Thanksgiving here. I want to begin by telling you a story that is perhaps one of my worst days ever as a parent. And you can look at me and tell I'm not an active parent. Our kids are grown. So this is a while back. Uh, in fact, our oldest daughter, Sarah, was five. And our, young, our second daughter, youngest daughter, second of three kids, uh, she was two. So five and two, 30 years ago. They're 35 and 32 now. And this is what happened. We were living in Western Oregon. And Gail had gone out for a few hours. And in Western Oregon, it uh, looks like today during the whole school year. You know, it's always rainy, cloudy, gloomy. And so that day was a beautiful day. Sun was out, the sky was blue, and you know, when you get that in Western Oregon, you know, you want to be outside. So I'm there, and uh, Gail's gone, and so I decided, you know, it'd be great to run with my kids uh, with me. And, and this is before baby joggers, so I didn't have that resource. And so we had a little red wagon, and I decided that I could put my girls in the red wagon and strap them in with belts so they'd be in there nice and tight. And that uh, the t- if I grabbed the tongue of the handle, it, it'd be too close to me. I couldn't really run. So I had this long piece of tubing that I tied to the tongue. And I you know, stretched out a few feet, and, and I could grab it with the, the other hand. And I could run with them. And it was a beautiful day. And you know, I just was so excited to be able to go out, you know, be with my girls, I'd be outside. I could run, that sort of thing. So I took off. And uh, there's a neighborhood, asphalt streets. Now, Oregon is pretty hilly. And um, so after about a mile, uh, we, we kind of crested this hill, and we had a long downhill stretch. Yeah. <laughs> and going down that, that downhill, I was feeling good, and I got to going fast, and, and I didn't realize that, that that wagon began to get some momentum going down that. And, and pretty soon, we were flying down that hill. And the, the wagon was gaining on me. And I, I wasn't aware of it. And so at a certain point, my foot apparently hits the tubing or something, and it flips the wagon on its side. Yeah, I know. And, and, and remember, they're strapped in. So they hit the sides of their little faces hard. And, you know, all of a sudden, you know, I had this wreck, and there was wailing and tears and blood and I did not know if I had done damage, you know, permanent damage to, to the kids. It was, it was bad. I knew Gail would not be pleased about this. And uh, so, you know, I just, uh, two little girls crying their heads off, you know, there's blood everywhere. I kind of pushed the wagon over to the side, pick up the girls, and, you know, I had a mile walk back, but it's okay. You know, they're hurting badly. So, you know, I walk back, and, you know, two or three hours later, Gail arrives home, looks at their faces, it's not pretty. You can see Callie on the, uh, that's your le- right, I guess. Um, you can't really see uh, Sarah's wounds, but, uh, you know, they, it was bad. And, um, you know, one of my worst days as parents, for all of you other guys who tend to be a little bit reckless with stuff, uh, you had those days. It's, um, it's, it's been a picture for me, though, of what, um, you know, I, I meant well, and yet my girls ended up battered, bloodied, and bruised. And and this week, you know, that's a good picture of what sin does to us, to our souls. Sin leaves us battered, bloodied, and bruised every time. It may take a while for it to do it. Sometimes it's immediate, sometimes it's not. 
But that's the picture of what sin does to us. Now, the first paragraph of Genesis 3 introduces for the first time in the Bible four key subjects, sin, temptation, Satan, and the spiritual battle. I've mentioned before in our journey through Genesis 1 through 3 that every theme of the Bible is found in seed form in the first three chapters of the Bible. And so these are the foundational passages, including for these four topics. And I think of any passage that I've come to yet, in some ways, that this is the paragraph that has more practical, vital insight for daily life than any. In fact, on about Wednesday of this week, I was planning to go through verses 1 through 7, uh, which is the first paragraph, and I got through verse 5, and I, I've got a whole sermon, and I've got another sermon full of stuff on 6 and 7, so I thought, I just got to stop at 5. And so 6 and 7 is going to come next week. But uh, it's just filled with practical wisdom that we need for daily life about these most important subjects. So Genesis 3 is on the one hand soaring literature, you know, crime and punishment and drama and pathos, but it's practical for daily life. And this is the Word of God. So if you'd stand with me, I want to read our passage. I'm going to read the first seven verses because you, we've got to get the whole paragraph, but we will only cover the first five verses today. Genesis 3, beginning in verse 1. Imagine this. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of the fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. This is God's holy word. Please be seated. Now, the first two chapters of Genesis, if you've been with us on our journey through Genesis 1 through 3, uh, has no hint or indication that we've got a spiritual enemy. Everything is good to this point. In fact, chapter 1, the first six days of creation, it was good, it was good, it was good. Genesis 2 is the Sabbath day, and then a more of a detailed portrait of day 6, the creation of man and woman. Everything is good. It's a paradise environment. The man, and his woman, the man and his wife at the end of Genesis 2 were naked and unashamed. There was no sin, no barrier, no evil. But wait, Genesis 3 begins, and there is a serpent, and behind the serpent is Satan, more crafty than any beast of the field. Where did Satan come from? There's been no mention. Well, if we take the whole Bible together, this is the portrait we could put together of the four big stages of eternal history. 
Eternity past, eternity future. Four stages. We could call them four acts in the play. Act one is eternity past when there's only God, the triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit. He hasn't created anything. So that would be act one. And then act two, God creates the angelic beings. And he creates these angels, and they're good, but lots of them rebel against God, led by Lucifer, or what we call Satan. And so that would be act two, the angelic, creation of the angelic world and the rebellion and the judgment, act two. And then we come in act three to Genesis 1-1, the creation of the world as we know it. When God creates the heavens and the earth, the world as we know it, humans, us, and everything else. And then all of the Bible is basically in act three, uh, the world as we know it. And at the very end of the New Testament, there is the creation of the new heavens and the new earth. Jesus comes to fulfill his kingdom. We pray for the coming of that kingdom every Sunday morning when I kneel here and we pray together the Lord's Prayer. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. That's what we're praying for. Jesus, come back in glory and establish your reign and rule on this earth in the eternal state. New heavens and new earth. So that is all uh, Act 3 until that final stage, and that's Act 4. But the entire Bible, from Genesis 1, 1 and 2 through the end of the Bible, right to the end, is lived in Acts 3. We live our whole lives in Act, in Act 3 with a raging spiritual battle going on. Now, that raging spiritual battle begins in the third chapter of the Bible, and it continues until three chapters from the end of the Bible. Genesis 1 and 2, paradise environment. Revelation 21 and 22, a counterpoint to that. Also, the new heavens and new earth, paradise environment. But all the rest of it, spiritual battle and spiritual war, especially is that pronounced in the New Testament, in the Gospels and the letters, and more than anywhere in the book of Revelation in the final time. So we live our lives in raging spiritual battle. Now, we see in verse 1, now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. Behind the serpent is Satan. We'll see that later in the chapter, but it becomes more clear the rest of the Bible. So he's more crafty, coming in attack. He said to the woman, at the end of verse 1, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree of the garden? Now, do you hear the tone of incredulity there? You know, Satan is, is coming to deceive and to attack and to tempt, and, and he basically asks, I cannot believe it that God would say, you can't eat of the trees of this garden. That mean God. Now, that is the attack of Satan on Eve, and it is the attack of Satan on you. It is the suggestion that God is not really good and is not to be trusted, that God is really, in fact, a cosmic killjoy. And that is the voice that you have been hearing in your head all of your life, from your earliest memories you have been hearing that voice, and you may not have ever recognized that was the voice of Satan trying to ruin your soul and to attack you, to suggest God is not really good. God is depriving you of something you really need to be happy, 
that God is really not to be trusted. You better look out for yourself. That is the voice of the enemy. And just about all people around the world believe that lie, believe that God is a cosmic killjoy and is not to be fully trusted with your whole life. Even so many Christians down deep see God, feel that God is, 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 is like a cosmic killjoy. That is the voice you hear all of your life. And unless you marinate your soul daily in this book, that's going to be your view of God. But you look in, in this book and you see the lies of the enemy and you see the goodness of God that he has never, ever let you down. And he never will. So Satan suggests to Eve that God is difficult. He's unfair. He, is, uh, he distorts what God said. Do, do you know, remember what he said here? Uh, has God really said you're not free to eat of the, 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 any of the trees of the garden? That's almost the exact opposite of what God had said. In Genesis 2, 17, this is what God had said. Adam and Eve, you are free to eat of any of the trees of the garden. Freely eat of any of the trees. Satan doesn't include those two words. He says, God said you're not able to eat of, any of, the, tree, not able to eat of the trees. He's distorting the, the goodness of God. The, you're free to eat of any of these trees, making God seem harsh. We should expect God. We should expect God's goodness to be attacked by Satan. Oswald Chambers once said profoundly, the root of all sin is the suspicion that God is not good. You believe that suspicion? You heard that suspicion? Satan deceptions, Satan's deception to you is this. If you fully surrender your life to God, if you obey God, live for God completely, you're going to miss out on something you really need because God's holding back on you. And Satan's strategy is to devour your soul to get you to doubt the love of God for you. So it's not a, a minor matter to, to, to not fully embrace the love of God for you. It is huge. It is everything. It makes all the difference in whether or not you will trust God and obey God and follow God. Satan will say to you things like this. God is so unfair with what he says about divorce. God is so harsh with what he says about sex outside of marriage between a man and a woman. God is so unfair about, uh, you know, complete honesty in your work. Uh, that will be the satanic voice out to ruin your soul. Now, expect Satan to come in disguise. One of my professors in seminary pictured it this way. He said, when Satan comes to you, he does not come in the form of a coiled snake. He does not approach with the roar of a lion. He does not come waving a red flag. Satan simply slides into your life. When he appears, he seems almost like a comfortable companion. There's nothing about him that you would dread. The New Testament warns that he disguises himself as an angel of light. When the enemy attacks you, he wears a disguise. In the play Faust by Johann Goethe, he wrote, the, he wrote, the people do not know the devil is there even when he has them by the throat. Some of you, Satan has you by the throat and you don't know that he's there. And he's about to strangle the life out of you. He does not whisper to Eve, I am here to tempt you. 
He doesn't come knock on the door of your soul and say, pardon me, buddy, give me an hour of your life so I can damn you and destroy you. There, there will be no announcement. Satan will slide in. He will slither in. And he will come to deceive, tempt, accuse, and attack you. In, in the satanic strategy to devour your soul. Church, recognize his schemes. We're not naive. We're not like Adam and Eve. They had no Bible. We've got a Bible. We've got the truth of God. Recognize his schemes. Resist his schemes. Refuse his voice. Resist him, and he will flee from you. That's what the Bible says. He will flee from you. So how does Eve respond to the serpent? This distorting the word of God and distorting God's goodness. Well, she doesn't respond very well. Verse 2, and the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. Eve makes two errors in her response. She understates God's goodness. She overstates God's restriction. She understates God's goodness because God had made it very emphatic. I mean, he was very generous with them. He said, you, are, you may freely eat of any of the trees of the garden, just this one, just this one. All the rest, live it up, have fun. And uh, Eve does not mention the freely eat and any of the trees. She simply says that God said we may eat of the trees in the garden. So she distorts that. Moreover, she overstates the restriction God only said to them, he says, don't eat of that tree, the tree of knowledge of good and evil. But when Eve uh, reports back to Satan, she says that God had said, we may not eat of that tree or even touch it. Where'd she get that? God didn't say, don't touch it. He said, you're not to eat of it. Now, this tendency to understate God's goodness and to magnify God's restriction, uh, she has had so many followers down through the centuries. Chiefly, the Pharisees in the New Testament. They would understate God's goodness. They would overstate God's restrictions. For example, God would say, uh, honor the Sabbath, keep it holy. Well, they would overstate that with 39 specific things to do and not do. You could spit on a rock because it wouldn't make mud. It wouldn't work. Couldn't spit on the sand. You could take so many steps, not these many steps. All these restrictions. And there have been so many other Christians who have made the same twofold mistakes down through the centuries. Now just think about it. Anytime you take a man-made tradition and elevate it to the status and the authority of God's word, you are overstating God's, what God has said to us, making God seem more harsh or restrictive than he is. Um, things like this. Certain Christian groups, they'll have rules like, uh, you know, you, you, you can't go to movies or you can't go to these certain kind of movies, or you cannot drink alcohol, or you, um, um, other, other kinds of rules that are, are not found in the Bible. They sound spiritual, like those people are really serious about God. Church, they are not spiritual. They do not lead to spiritual life and helping you love Jesus more. If you keep those man-made rules, it will result in spiritual pride and self-righteousness. If you don't keep those man-made rules, it will, it will result in guilt and a sense of condemnation. Neither one is going to help you love Jesus more 
That's why Satan is behind those extra-biblical rules that we could refer to as legalism. Now, a lot of us grew up in churches that were legalistic. Right? Probably none of us escaped that completely. Church. If you move from the woodlands to Dallas, do not go to a legalistic church. Certainly, do not allow your children to grow up in a legalistic church. It will be death for their spiritual life. And you will risk alienating them from God for the rest of their lives. This is a ploy of Satan. Now, let me be clear. If it's stated in the Bible, no questions asked, you do it. It is for your life and for your good. But if it is not in the Bible, don't legislate it for other people. If you believe God is leading you to homeschool, don't make any rules about all the Christians need to homeschool. Or public school. If you believe that, you know, that if you love lost people, you put your kids in public school. Don't legislate that for everybody. You go with the, the commandments of the Bible, and uh, others are matters of freedom. Romans 14, other passages. It's the way Jesus taught us and lived us. All righty. Um, verse 4, Satan again responds. You know, he distorted God's word. He again responds to, to Eve, comes at her again. This time, he doesn't distort God's word. He denies God's word, which he'll do to you. This is what he says in verse 4. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. Now, the Hebrew language here is very emphatic, very emphatic uh, statement. There is no way you're going to die. Don't be silly. I mean, he is right now outright denying the word of God. He's denying the truth that sin has consequences and will hurt us. He's denying the reality that there is judgment on evil. He's denying, really, ultimately, the reality of hell. And, and, and that is a voice that we're going to hear all over the place. The denial that sin is sin and hurts us, the denial of judgment and the denial of hell. One writer imagines this way. It's like Satan's throwing his head back and with irrepressible laughter saying, surely you don't believe that, do you, Eve, that you're going to die? I mean, for heaven's sake, it's just a piece of fruit. You're not going to die. You're way too sophisticated for that. You're going to hear the same voice. This is what it's going to sound like in your ears. Things like this. The Bible is not even true. It's full of errors. Centuries old. That command doesn't apply to you. You're, you're different. Or, God will forgive you. Just go ahead and sin and confess it later. Or, sin's no big deal. It's just a little sin. Or, you can sin and get away with it. God's not really going to judge you. Or, you deserve this. You, you need this to be happy. Or, there's no judgment. There's no price to, the price to pay for sin. There's no real hell. Have you heard those voices? <laughs> yeah. You've heard them in your own head, the voice of the enemy. And they're everywhere in our culture. <laughs> Satan is still trying to deny the reality of sin judgment and hell. You know, a big problem with denying and minimizing the reality of sin is that if you don't really have a problem with sin, then you don't need a savior. But if you recognize the gravity 
of sin against a holy God, the rebellion that it constitutes inside, then you will call out to God for grace and mercy and your need for a Savior. Of course, Satan is going to minimize sin, judgment, and hell. There will be popular books come off the presses to deny the reality of hell. The first truth that Satan denied was right here with a judgment against sin. Resist that attack. Repudiate that voice. Run to God and stand on his word. Now, Satan continues. First, he denied it. He says, but you, you will not surely die. Then he goes on and says, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Now, think about that. What's he suggesting here is that, you know, if you eat that fruit, you're going to be like God. You're going to know good and evil. You're going to be in the know. God is holding back something that you really need. And that's the voice you're going to hear. Oh, uh, God, God says you can't divorce her. God, God, you're, God's holding back something you really need to be happy. We're going to hear that voice all the time. And Satan here is suggesting, Eve, um, you'd be like God if you, you eat this. The appeal to Eve that she's going to be like God is the essence of sin, that we think we're independent from God, we don't need God, we're just found our own, this is my life after all, it's my money, I can do what I want. Uh, that, that is us playing God, which is the original temptation to Eve. You're going to be like God. You're going to be independent. You don't need God. Now, keep in mind, the environment that Adam and Eve are in, they are in a paradise environment. I mean, they got their every need met. There's no problem. There's no cancer. There's no storms. There, you know, life is good. Life is good. Now, they've got one restriction. They can focus on that one restriction and grow resentful, or they can focus on all the bounty and freedom that God had given them and grow grateful. And so can you. So can you. You can focus on a few things that you do not have, that maybe your neighbor has. You can focus on those things and grow resentful. Or you can focus on all the good things that God has given you and grow grateful. Now, you know that the essence of joy is gratitude. That's the heart of it. The happiest people on the planet are the grateful people on the planet. And resentment, that is a poison to your soul. So, in the choice between focusing on the good things that God's given you or focusing on the few things you don't have, what choice have you been making? It's everything about your life. Grateful or resentful. Now, church, um, that's only five verses. But there's at least that much in verses six and seven. So I just, uh, Wednesday I had to decide, okay, that's not happening this week. So you don't have two sermons today. But so let me just wrap up. There were 12 vital truths that we just saw from God's Word in those five verses. Let me just summarize them. They're so vital to everyday life. One, there is a raging spiritual battle, unseen but real. Beware of denial about that battle, ignoring Satan's schemes. 
Ephesians 6.12. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Spiritual battle. Two, we have a real spiritual enemy, and he is out to devour us. Let me be more specific. He is out to devour you. You. 1 Peter 5.8, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Three, Satan's strategy is to convince you that God is not really good and cannot be fully trusted. Behind all sin is the suggestion that God is not good. Four, when the tempter comes, he comes in disguise Recognize his schemes to make sin look good. Five, in the spiritual battle, we must resist the devil and stand firm in Christ's strength. James 4, 7, submit yourselves therefore to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Coward. He will flee from you. Resist him. No. Christ's strength. Six, in Christ's strength... I can say no to temptation. Now, this one's big because this is the lie you hear. You're involved with an addiction. You know, all of us are in some way or the other. It might be chocolate. It might be benign, but we got addictions. So here's the lie of Satan. Um, you've got to do this. You, you can't help yourself. This sexual addiction, this alcohol addiction, this shopping, you can't help yourself. You've got to. And even if you don't have an addiction, it's still the same lie. Uh, you just got, that's just the way you are. That's just the way your family is. Y'all lose your temper. That's just the way you do it. As if we've got to sin. Friends, that is such a lie. And that's just set up to fail and to go along with the sin because you've got to. What a crock. Um, this is what 1 Corinthians 10, 13 says. No temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. And God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. But with the temptation will provide the way of escape also, that you may be able to endure it. That is as clear as day. You can say no to sin. By God's grace, don't kid yourself. Seven, Jesus resisted temptation by submitting to God's word. In contrast, Adam and Eve. So, Matthew 3, Matthew 4, Luke 3, the temptation of Jesus is specifically set up to be a contrast to Adam and Eve. Here's what not to do, here's what to do. And in fact, uh, Adam and Eve were in paradise environment. Jesus was on enemy turf. He was on the, the visitor's field. He was out in the desert. And Satan comes to Jesus and attacks him. He comes to the second Adam to attack him. And unlike Adam and Eve... He does not succumb to the temptation. What does he do to resist? Well, the first time Satan comes, he quotes a passage in Deuteronomy. He says, it is written, and he quotes the verse, and he obeys it. Second time Satan comes, he says, it is written, and he quotes the Bible, and he obeys it. Not enough to know it, you've got to obey it. The third time Satan comes, this is what Jesus does. He quotes the Bible, it is written, and he obeys it. How do you think you and I ought to deal with temptation? I think we ought to quote the Bible and obey it. 
You won't know what to quote and stand upon if you don't marinate your soul in this Bible every day. If, if you don't use this book and live by it and brainwash your soul in it, it's like you rushing out in the battle and you have a toy a sword in your hand, a plastic sword. You have no weapon. The Bible is your sword. You need it for the battle and obey it. Eight, sin always hurts me, always. It leaves me battered, bloodied, and bruised. Nine, there is judgment on sin, make no mistake. Galatians 6, 7, whatever a man sows, this he will also reap. Ten, beware of the lie that you are an exception to God's command, that it does not apply to you. Oh, that, that command, that doesn't apply to you. That's for those other people. Eleven, God's grace is always bigger than my sin. The Bible says, where sin abounds or where sin increases, grace increases all the more. However big my sin is, Christ's grace is bigger because he's the spotless, eternal son of God and his blood can cover all my sin. So the theme of the Bible is not our sin and the judgment to follow. The theme of the Bible is God's grace can cover our sin if we will humble ourselves and call out to God for a Savior, the grace of God. Twelve, finally, the solution to sin is death. It's a death. The solution to sin is not me trying hard to please God. Not me trying to be perfect, because that ain't going to happen. It's not, it's not my churchianity. It's not my religion. It's not my performance in any way. The, the only solution to your sin is death. Either your death, forever, eternal death, or the death of God's Son in your place. I'll take the latter. I'll go with the latter. I'll go with the death of Jesus. It's interesting in this passage, so profound, later in the passage, Adam and Eve, in their efforts to be good enough and to cover their sin and their guilt and shame, they, they, they go out and get some big fig leaves and tie them together somehow with a vine and cover their nakedness. And God said, that won't do. That won't do. Let me help you. And God killed animals. And he took the skins and covered them. There had to be death. That death of those animals couldn't really take care of their sin, but it was a pointer to the blood of Jesus, the Lamb of God, who could one day cover their sin. And that's why when Jesus shows up for ministry, John says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Let's be really clear. There's only one thing that can cover our sin against a holy God. And that is death. The death of Jesus did it. What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Glory. Glory.
Stand with me, please. If you're here and you've never trusted Christ as your Savior, if the gospel was not made clear to you before, it should be clear now. It's not about measuring up or being religious. It's about the death of Jesus in your place. Receiving a Savior. Breathe a prayer now. Jesus, come and save me. Come and save me. He'll do it. He'll do it. Lord God, would you please help us to be aware of the schemes of the enemy and not foolish. Lord, the havoc Satan is bringing on our families, on our lives, on our churches, on our country. Lord, may we stand in Christ's strength against the enemy. Lord, there are some probably a bunch of people here in this room right now who are Satan has got them by the throat and they maybe not even know it. Lord, rip their hands off of the enemy and banish the enemy from their lives. By the blood of Jesus, we pray you would set them free. Bring them to their senses, Lord God, and rescue them. And Lord, for all of us, may we know the joy of living grateful lives of obedience to you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.